Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Better Movement podcast. My guest this week is Bronnie Lennox Thompson. Bronnie is an expert on chronic pain. She has fibromyalgia. She teaches about the science of pain, and she treats people with chronic pain. She holds a PhD, has published research, and she is a senior lecturer at the University of Otago in Christchurch in New Zealand. She's also an occupational therapist. I've been reading Bronnie's excellent blog called Health Skills for many years, and also talking with her online at Facebook. Uh, I've met her in person a few times at the San Diego Pain Conference, and Bronnie is one of the most informed, wise, and nice people I've met uh, in the community of therapists who are interested in pain science. She knows a ton about what it's like to live with pain and especially how to live well with pain. In this podcast, we talked about the symptoms of fibromyalgia, controversies over diagnosis, the pathophysiology of fibromyalgia, in other words, what is going on in the nervous system or endocrine system or immune system of someone with fibromyalgia. We talked about treatments and how to live well with fibromyalgia or other chronic pain conditions. If you have chronic pain or you know someone who does, or if you treat people in chronic pain, I highly recommend you listen to this podcast. Ronnie, thank you for coming on my podcast. My pleasure. <laughs> so let's start right off. Uh, what is fibromyalgia? Can you explain that in, uh, you can kind of explain it in kind of common sense, lay terms, and then maybe we'll get into some more technical definitions. Yeah. To the person living with fibromyalgia, it's widespread pain that does not go away, but moves from place to place. And that's the hallmark. And then accompanying that are some other things like poor sleep, unrefreshing sleep, really. Um, and then I think sort of evolving out of that can be things like always feeling tired, um, probably the, the fogginess, the cognitive fogginess. Um, and then it's really hard to feel chipper and happy and bright when you're aching and people look at you funny. So that's from the lived experience. The other way, You're, and that's that, your experience. You 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 uh, yeah. you have fibromyalgia. Yeah. So I've. I mean, I didn't. I didn't recognise that term or my condition or that that's what we we could call it. But I've lived with persistent pain oh, since my twenties, and it was it was just oh, it's neck pain, it's back pain, and then I started to add it up. Um, after I'd been working in a persistent pain service for some years, I might add. So that's, um, I think that's pertinent because if we talk about the process of diagnosis, that is one of the, again, hallmarks. So um, from a more theoretical perspective, um, fibromyalgia is kind of classified by the International Association for the Study of Pain under the grouping of nociplastic disorders. So that means there's no probable um, inflammatory process that we can detect. There's no neuropathic, so we don't find a lesion that we can identify anywhere in the somatosensory system. Um, and so it's 
really weird pain um, or processing, a processing problem is what I like to call it. So it's some, somewhere and probably throughout the nervous system, generally, centrally, um, that's where things go awry. The actual mechanisms are mm, complicated um, and that's one of the problems, I guess, with this group of disorders. So nociplastic pain includes things like migraine, um, uh, irritable bowel, um, lots of the pelvic pains. Um, so those sorts of things that are unexplainable by our traditional, um, very well out of date um, approach. There's got to be something wrong in the tissues. So it's not a problem of fascia or, um, yes, I do have tender points all over. And I even had someone threaten to, you know, put little injections of um, anaesthetic into all my points. And I thought, mm, that will look like a hedgehog. And you'll have to move it every day because that's another another feature. Um, so from a diagnostic perspective, you what you're looking for is um, that the pain's been around for a long time, three months at least, and that it's it's widespread through the body and that you've eliminated those other things like polymyalgia rheumatica or um, any of the inflammatory type disorders um, because they're usually, you can, you can identify and treat them reasonably effectively. Um, fibro is not quite so simple. <laughs> How do we know that it's not inflammatory? Are there blood tests you can take to look for markers of inflammation or is that a reaction to anti-inflammatory drugs? Um, a bit of both. So if you have, say, ankylosing spondylitis, then you will have um, raised the C-reactive protein. So if you've got any of the um, seropositive arthropathy, arthropathies, then that will show up in your blood test. There is nothing like that for fibro. There's no imaging that we can do. There's no biomarker for it. And so it used to be described as a diagnosis of exclusion. But you could say that something like depression also doesn't have any biomarkers. We have to listen to the person and what they're telling us and look at their signs and symptoms. And then we decide, oh, this person's depressed. And so it's very similar with um, fibromyalgia. One of the issues, though, is because it's pain, um, people expect that there will be something. And so the label itself and the diagnostic process and the way of um, even the classification, so you know, what are these criteria, have been argued about forever. And then we have lots of reluctance from, um, from some parts of our sort of clinical community to give somebody that label because there's this belief that it's going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, I utterly reject that. We don't tell somebody with depression or pneumonia or a broken leg, oh, we won't tell you what you've got because you might <gasps> be depressed. Like, that's just dumb. Um, so it's more about, um, I think, recognising that if somebody has got this experience, they will undoubtedly jump online and they will probably find their community of people who also live with this. And in that community, they might get all manner of really helpful stuff, but also really unhelpful stuff. And so to be a really effective clinician, you, we need to be well, 
really to welcome the process of diagnosing and understanding and then helping the person with fibromyalgia understand what that might mean for their life, which is the harder part. Not that hard to give a label, but it's a lot more difficult to say, and what this means is. Yeah, it's it's interesting you mentioned uh, the depression. I mean, nobody, uh, one of the things we haven't talked about is that one of the reasons that the term fibromyalgia is controversial is because there's been for a very long time, and I'm sure it continues quite a bit, a suspicion that the people complaining about the things that they're complaining about don't actually have those problems because you can't find the objective markers for them. But yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned with depression, if someone says, I'm really, really depressed, we don't really doubt that. I I wonder why that is. Maybe it's because everybody's kind of had low mood before. Uh, Maybe everyone can kind of feel what that's like, but to imagine having lots of pains all over your body that move around and aren't related to an injury, I suppose that's very hard for a lot of people to imagine at all, and it leads to the skepticism. And I think there's also been this concern about that once having got that label, then then that person will seek compensation or seek insurance. So in New Zealand, that can't happen because we don't have that process. But um, with the insurance company, so our accident insurance, one of the kind of beginning parts of some of the initiating events for fibromyalgia can be a physical insult. So you lift something and ouch your back hurts and instead of going away it kind of hangs around and then spreads and so in New Zealand you'd be able to say well I've done this physical accident it meets your definition of of something that can be covered and now I've got this additional problem that's been uncovered and so you can get insurance cover that's a quirk of our our insurance um, sort of legislation so I think that contestability is one of the problems that if you can't clearly identify it somehow, some objectivity, then you can't have it. Um, and we know that, you know, we've looked at like long, long COVID as a really good comparable um, problem. We know that there is some scepticism in some communities about this long COVID. Oh, you just don't want to get better. Um, and people with fibro have been told the same. People with um, chronic fatigue have been told the same thing. And people with long-term low back pain, you just don't want to work. So to me, there's a bit of a judgment, being a moral judgment being made about, have you put the effort in? Um, and I'd like to say, yes, people generally have put the effort in. Um, most people with fibromyalgia will have maybe seen somebody for one one problem, haven't responded, and then the pain moves. And they say, well, I can't go back because, you know, it's not, and it didn't it didn't fix it last time, so what am I going to do? And one of the diagnostic problems that I've heard, and this is in qualitative research, are people with fibromyalgia saying, well, I don't really want to go to my GP. I'm going to look like a neurotic, you know, malingerer, and I don't want to be judged. But if I go, I'm going to say, well, I'm sore here and then I'm sore there and, and it shifts and, and that's really weird and I don't understand it and there's nothing to find on examination. And that is really hard. So 
I'm yeah, not sure it's, how we do it. <laughs> it. It's just it's just horrible how people with these problems have been treated for so long. I see some improvement. I know it, it's still mm. uh, incredibly difficult. I want to talk more about that, but I do want to get uh, just a little bit more precision on it. You mentioned uh, neuropathic. So it, it, it's not neuropathic. In, in other words, this is not any kind of local peripheral damage to any kinds of nerves? There's some um, discussion that small fiber neuropathy could be part of the picture. And, and this is still really under debate because it looks like some people with widespread body pain do have small fiber neuropathy. But as the IASP definition of nociplastic pain points out, you can have both neuropathic pain and a nociplastic process, just like you can have an inflammatory pain and a neuroplastic process. Can you define nociplastic for us? That's a new, uh, new term. Yeah. So nociplastic is, was coined in oh, November 2017 was when the IASP released that definition. And this is pain that, um, I can't pull up the actual definition, but essentially it's pain where there is an experience of pain, but we can't identify the specific location or mechanisms at the moment. It's meant to be about the central nervous system processing. So how does the nervous system process sensory information? So, so, so it's a problem. With, it's it's, it's a pro, You could say it's a problem with sensitivity. Is that is that fair? Yeah, yeah. So there are some things that are quite hallmarks. Um, Temperature is one of the areas. So if we think about any sensory input, um, mechanicals, sort of vision, um, light, um, tactile, temperature, even tastes. Um, and so if I lift up my cup of coffee, coffee, um, I drink it tepid to other people. It feels hot to me. And that's, you know, it's long people joke about it <laughs> because my coffee is, is disgusting to most people but to me that feels hot similarly with a shower if I jump in the shower and it's on somebody else's temperature it's going to be too hot um mechanical so pain pressure thresholds so if you poke me it takes less input for me to say ouch that hurts and furthermore I'm going to say, stop that. I have had enough far sooner than other people who have a fairly normal nervous system. And that's so, kind of a, a objective. I mean, you're, of course, you're relying on subjective report from the patient to, to do those tests, but those are sciencey, objective sounding tests. So those types of things lend a lot of, have probably helped people understand that this is a real thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Clinically, it's less than useful unless you want to do quantitative sensory testing as part of your, your clinical regime. And I'm not certain that, that we're at that point where that would be very helpful. Um, because all it does is say, it says, well, if I put more input into you, you're going to say, ouch, sooner. Um, so what? <laughs> we already knew that. I just sat here and said, ouch, my butt hurts because you've been keeping me waiting out in the waiting room. So um, I'm not sure that that does anything except make the clinician feel a bit more comfortable that, oh my goodness, that's what you've got. And there are local problems where you can have that same thing. So if you've got a sore back um, and you get poked, you'll probably also have that same problem because 
associated with the whole idea of nociplastic pain is, um, and it's often con- confused with the term central sensitization. That was so very I yeah, I want to be really clear here, um, and I think this is important for us as clinicians. So when we talked about central sensitization, the physiological process, it's present when you have nociceptive input, when you have inflammatory input, and when you have neuropathic pain. It's that wind-up, it's that summation, it's all of that. Now, if you remove that, so you remove the um, inflammatory process, for example, you treat Anki's bond successfully, then that central sensitization process for most people drops. It goes away, which is fantastic. But if you have somebody who's got Anki's bond and they are treated and their C-reactive proteins drop and they still say, ouch, I am sore, then they've probably got a nociplastic element. So this is not central sensitization that I think we can describe as reversible. It is that there are some processing changes. Now, it could happen because that stimulation from inflammation or nociception or or neuropathy has been there for a long time. And so the nervous system has adapted over time. But that's a process that we don't know very much about. So I'm hazarding that you know, we're just going to guess that. So, so when, when we use that word central sensitization, it became popularized and people said, well, now I can spot it because it's more widespread and people report all these other things. And so it kind of got coined as oh, a central sensitization syndrome. Then um, IASP said, but hold on. Clifford Wolf stuff shows that central sensitization is reversible. So what if we group them? these disorders that probably have that sort of characteristic where the pain hangs around this amping up of the experience let's put them under that term nociplastic so we can start to explore them so you don't tell somebody you've got nociplastic pain but you say your pain disorder lives under that umbrella and the terminology is starting is getting, oh, <laughs> I don't know if these changes are all that helpful. What about this? Where does the sensitivity live? It doesn't live in the periphery because that's kind of an inflammatory type of sensitivity. It, if it's happening in the dorsal horn, that's the reversible Clifford Wolf type of sensitization that would tend to go away when the nociception isn't coming there anymore. Does that mean it's living north in the, uh, in the brain areas? Good question. It doesn't sound like we can just put a dividing line in. And I, I think when we think about central nervous system, we often think of oh, brain. But where does the brain start? Because, you know, we've got a midbrain and we've got things further south. And that whole, yeah. So I don't want to put a dividing line. What we do know is that descending inhibition, which goes right down to the dorsal horn, so that's actually happening in the dorsal horn, that is impaired in someone like me. So it's not functioning very well. And we're not sure of the processes, but we can test that using quantitative sensory testing and doing conditioned pain modulation. So, so the, the uh, just, just for the people that don't, don't know, descending inhibition is kind of like the feel-good chemicals you get, what you might get when you exercise, for example, things that would normally hurt, stop hurting when you exercise, that's your descending inhibition. It's endocannabinoids and opioid kind of stuff. And in yeah. people with fibromyalgia, that doesn't work as well, right? 
Yeah, um, there's a bit more to it because descending inhibition also applies. If you're if you're um, playing a, um, a physically rough game and you're just about to win a goal, your attentional processes also in, include putting that descending inhibition in. So that, that ascending stuff from your body that you're getting squished between two giant players, um, that doesn't get to reach perception. So before you don't experience pain until the next day when you think, oh, how do I get that bruise? And we've all done that. So descending inhibition is an ongoing constant process of that the nervous system uses to filter out how much peripheral information arrives for perception. Uh-huh. And where perception li- lives, we do not know. Um, and so I am not going to argue that pain is a perception or a sensation. We perceive pain. That's enough for me. We experience pain. And it's a sen- and according to the definition, it's a sensory and emotional experience. So let's just be done with the arguing over there. <laughs> Let's definitely be done. And we're not, we're not going there for sure. But um, so, so, we, so one of the hallmark, what seems to be lie at the center of, of uh, FM, which everyone kind of agrees is this enhanced sensitivity that, that lives in the nervous system. What about the, uh, the immune system? Well, it's not an inflammatory thing, but what about neuroinflammation? I've heard the idea that, that yeah. neuroinflammation, which is kind of an inflammation right in the nervous system. What about that? It's probable. I think that at this stage, it's emerging. This, the material that I've been looking at mostly is around um, opioid receptors in people with fibro are already occupied. So this means we don't use our endogenous opioids as effectively as anybody else. It also means that we don't respond as well to an opioid What are they drug. occupied with? Well, that's an interesting question. We don't know. We do know that if you put something that's an inhibitor, an opioid inhibitor antagonist, then for some people that can help in low dose. So low low dose naloxone might be, for some people, a useful drug. However, it's not clear cut because not only do we have that process of more um, poorer use of opioids, we also got an increased substance P. So substance P lowers the threshold of those adjacent neurons. So they're more likely to fire. So we've got that going on. And then we've got a whole bunch of things happening in in the brain that are only just becoming emergent. Um, And there's probably much more stuff happening in the the spinal cord that I haven't dug into because, you know, I'm a simple creature. But I, you're not I a simple at... creature, but this is complex stuff. I mean, when I, oh, when I yeah. go, Hey, I'm going to look into neuroinflammation. Then I'm like, in look, Ooh, looking yeah. at this very long list of chemicals, all of which, you know, modify each other. And, you know, like this increases this, but that decreases that. And sometimes yeah. this increases it, but other times it decreases it. And you're into like a list of like 20 chemicals you've never heard of. And it's With like, all polysyllable. wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the things that, that is probable is that our glial cells that we thought were just there kind of filling in space and feeding the nerves, well, probably they're involved in that neuroinflammatory process and they're modulating, generally upregulating what's going on and, you know, to allow more information to head north. But we don't know. And I'm going to be quite happy about that at the moment. This information is kind of accumulating 
When we get to the brain, though, we know there are a couple of things, that, well, quite a few things that go on. Um, so when you sit doing nothing, your brain is always doing something, and that's called the default mode network. So you're not concentrate, you're just daydreaming, wool gathering. Um, and so there's this network of stuff that's happening that's just always cooking along. And we can visualize that using functional MRI, which is really just having a look at blood flow. Um, and then in people with fibromyalgia, what we know is that there's a lot more activity going on at rest. So there's more con connectivity. Um, and then there are certain networks, like the salience network, that are more active when stimulation is, is put in for people with fibromyalgia. And the, the salience network and the default mode network include some of those really important areas like the thalamus and, um, you know, the amygdala, all those sorts of areas that we know are involved in processing, not just the sensory, so the location or the um, what does it feel like, but also the emotional response and our preparedness to do something about it. So in a sense, it's like the, the brain is already busy processing stuff. So if you think about some of the experiences that people have with fibroid, that it's harder to concentrate. Well, maybe that's because a lot of our neural space is being used. Mind you, I do want to torment my fifth-year medical students and do a cold presser test and ask them to recite all their nerves and, you know, I do some calculations because anybody experiencing pain is going to find it a little difficult to concentrate and they're not going to be that excited about life if you make them stay there doing it. So that fifth years, if any of you are watching, watch out. <laughs> <laughs> so so you mentioned the, the, the cognitive uh, problems. Uh, uh, there's also uh, these. There's a lot of comorbidities with uh, FM, anxiety, depression, insomnia. These things are much more common, right? And and there's some kind of interesting connections. I mean, I I find these connections really interesting because all of these conditions are, they're kind of conditions of excessive protective mechanisms in the body. So pain's there to protect you, and sleep's there to protect you from. Um, you know, burning too much energy and anxieties there to protect you from scary things in the future and depressions to get you away. So, so all of these protective mechanisms are kind of overactivating at the same time. Yeah. Um, part of, I mean, part of that could be as a response to, but it's interesting that one of the first sort of hallmarks of fibromyalgia, apart from widespread pain, was the understanding that people with fibro don't go into delta sleep for as long or as deeply. So delta sleep's the deepest, deepest sleep. And that's a biological drivenness. We need to get to that point to um, part of the one of the functions of that part of our sleep is to clear out waste products from the brain. Which is interesting because if you don't get into deep, deep sleep, then maybe some of those byproducts are not getting washed out. Don't drink too much alcohol because you will end up not having nearly as much of that really deep sleep. That includes gin in the, um, I won't say anything more. <laughs> San Diego is a problem, guys. Well, it's not. It's lovely. I love it. <laughs> but, um, yeah. So, so that idea that when, if you're not doing that deep, deep sleep, perhaps there's residual stuff lurking around. And we know that if there's residual stuff lurking in the brain, that that could be around those um, pro-inflammatory processes. 
So that may be part of it. Um, and we also know that if you have rotten sleep, and that goes on for a little while, that predisposes you to develop a persistent pain of any kind. And there's a reciprocal relationship that it starts with. It seems to be more rotten sleep predicts more pain and long-standing pain. And if you've had a high pain day, you'll have probably have a rotten night's sleep. Beware, parents of young babies. <laughs> but you, you could probably say similar things about depression and anxiety, right? I mean, those are some more two-way streets. And those, I mean, anywhere you look, when you're studying this, you will get interested in some sort of a connection and you'll kind of feel like you're finding out what it is and then it'll lead you back in a circle. And there, so there's always some road to go down. Uh, but we're all looking at that um, limbic system and the limbic system is an integral to our processing of pain. Um, that's just one of those nociceptive information. So that's that, that part of it. Um, but you can also recognize that if you are feeling sore you're likely to feel down we think yeah. back to the overprotection thing um so some of the onset of fibromyalgia some of the risk factors are early life adverse childhood experiences um, now that could be physical and that um, maybe you're moved from place to place um, maybe your living environment is a bit uncertain or quite uncertain it could be that you had a really bad illness as a child. It could be emotional that you had lots of fighting in the family or family trauma. Um, it could be the absence of a parent or absence of a carer. Um, it could be any of those things. And to me, it's plausible to argue that we would then, as in, you know, emerging people, that we would be learning how to protect ourselves from threat. And if given our body's really into homeostasis and it likes to get to a steady state, would it not make sense for um, our nervous system to adapt and to become more, more protective? And that's a theory and we can't actually test it in humans. But we can look at natural studies. You couldn't do an RCT where you decided let's just, you know. Yeah, no. But we can look at natural studies. So let's have a look at, um, so Christchurch in 2011 had a, a huge earthquake, massive earthquake, and we are still suffering from the after effects of that earthquake. We've just had a series of small quakes over the last week um, because this is what happens with earthquakes. But over that first couple of years, five years really, um, first of all, people didn't have homes because they were broken and there were huge swathes of land that became uninhabitable and people were unable to find somewhere to live. So they were living in garages and they were living in their um, in tents and in um, caravans and motorhomes and for months and having to move from place to place to place. Children were... Um, for some unknown reason, our government at the time decided to close down all the schools and do a reshuffle. I know, let's just redistribute all the schools. So here's a place that kids go to, to feel quite secure, to have their friends. And suddenly there was a, an announcement that your school's going and it's going to be closed or it's going to be merged or you're going to move to another one, creating this sense of uncertainty. So not only have you got the physical disruption of months of disrupted sleep from an earthquake, you've got the 
stress of finding your way around a city, you've got your schooling interrupted, your family's under stress and not knowing where to, where to live, but you've got schools gone, friends. So what we've found is that, yes, there's a huge increase in the number of um, kids who are now what, 10 years older um, accessing mental health um, support that's needed. Some of that's PTSD, some of that's depression, some of that's anxiety. Give it a name, whatever you do, but it is definitely associated with earthquakes or natural disasters. The other thing is that we've had a huge increase in the number of people reporting pain. And that was that started fairly soon after the earthquakes because people had limbs squashed under buildings and lots of neuropathic pain and lots of fear and all that sort of stuff. But what we're finding now is there's more kids that are growing up with more pain. And I just think, well, that's something to learn from, isn't it? So when we have these disasters and they do happen, it does have a long-standing effect. And that could be epigenetic. Suddenly, the ways that, way that your genes express themselves gets changed. And that could be a factor, because one of the other theories for fibromyalgia is an idea called the diathesis stress model. So in that model, it says that we've, we, we are born with a set of um, strengths and vulnerabilities, capabilities and things that aren't quite so capable. And they're under stress, a big stress, areas that we're most vulnerable in may go into default mode and, and fall apart. So if you happen to be somebody who's got that genetic tendency to an oversensitive nervous system, it's not a single gene, it's a whole bunch of them, because, you know, it wouldn't be that simple, would it? It's not like Anki Spawn where we know there's a, as a marker, you know, a genetic marker. Fibro is not like that. But we do know that, that under stress, those genes can start to change. And one of those changes could well be to ramp up your nervous system. And I don't think that's implausible. And the interesting and sad thing is that that can be passed on um, to the next generation. And we know that with lots of other, you know, people who survived the Holocaust, who, you know, those genetic changes have been passed on. That's, that's what happens. Um, so I don't see that it's implausible. I think that what we need to do is learn from that. So don't revise your entire schooling when a whole city is under threat. That's a dumb thing to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I find those those kinds of that evidence very convincing, and the idea that early childhood trauma predisposes you to the anxiety, depression, fibro, all that stuff. I, I find it very convincing. Plausible. There's some other bits that are um, sort of risk factors. So being a woman, um, you know, as usual, <laughs> is a risk factor. Um, if you've got family members, um, so there's some familial relationships. So in my mum's family, she comes from a family of nine. Um, there's four of the family who have fibromyalgia um, and inflammatory um, osteo or inflammatory arthritis as well. Um, there's also things around if you have a trauma, for example, um, or a virus, something that's a health threat, when you're a little older, then that again, diathesis stress response can expose you to and elicit this fibromyalgia that's response. That's what reminds that's what me. To me. I wanted to ask, what's the chances that fibromyalgia is a post-viral thing that kind of like the long COVID, I mean, this long COVID idea 
Um, you know, the idea that you can get a bad virus and that can just drive your immune system crazy. And then it kind of resets it to a different point And you're kind of living with that different set point. But what are the chances that fibromyalgia is, is a post-viral situation? Well, one of the chronic first, fatigue that might be some people yeah. think that chronic fatigue is right. One of the first um, sort of viral theories was Epstein Barr virus, and it, lo and behold, was found that lots of people with fibromyalgia have Epstein Barr virus markers. Um, but then it's really, really widespread. So why do some people develop um, fibromyalgia with Epstein Barr and others don't? We don't know. Um, but again, it could be that diathesis stress, if you've got the vulnerability and then you happen to have a virus, then others don't have that virus, but they've had, um, say they were in a car smash-up in their teens, or they um, lifted something and they suddenly developed a back pain and that started. So we don't know what kicks it off, but there are some things that we know are associated with it. Um, by the way, it's not that you're psychologically fragile. That doesn't seem to be a hallmark. It's That seems to occur in parallel with, which doesn't surprise me. If you've got weird pains, you start checking out what's happening in your body. It's a bit like people with complex regional pain syndrome are thought to be, you know, there was a lot of argument that maybe they're psychologically nut nutty. And it has been found that, no, that's not a predictor. And so I think the same can apply with fibromyalgia. Remembering that it takes, on average, about four to eight years to get that label. So somebody wow. has probably had, the same applies to um, Anki's bond, I might say, too. So there's lots of these weird pain disorders that take a long time to be given a label. Um, and I think fibro fits into that particularly well. Like I said, people don't want to go in, in to see their GP um, in their sort of 20s or 30s saying, well, I've got an ache here and I've got a sore bit here and, oh, and I get these migraines and I've got irritable bowel. And, and you, you know, that people are worried that they're going to be labelled a hypochondriac and that's understandable. And then isn't it normal if you've got weird stuff going on to worry, wonder what's going on to feel a bit worried about it? Um, you know, that right. is human. So I don't see it as psychopathological. And I don't see it as human failing. It's a tendency that we all do. Um, we all catastrophized at the beginning of COVID, right? People went out and bought guns, for goodness sake. How's, and toilet paper. How much toilet paper did we need? But you know what I mean. So when when threat occurs that we're not sure about, something, some event that says, you know, what you expect to happen hasn't happened, we all tend to think the worst. And that's an adaptive process. It's when we start to use that strategy too, for too long or when we get stuck in that loop of worrying about it, then catastrophizing becomes much more of a problem. So I'm not going to, I don't like the term, but worrying, thinking the worst, brooding on it, feeling like there's nothing you can do. Um, it's actually a bit of a reality for somebody living with fibromyalgia. Yeah. Imagine in a worst case scenario, it makes a lot of sense when this pain's yeah. been going on for a while. And <laughs> yeah. It doesn't help you. It, it can help keep you stuck, but it's not something to think of as, as weird. It's a common normal response. Yeah. And I think that's okay. It's just learning how to deal with that effectively. Well, that let's is. talk about how to deal with it. Let's talk about treatment. Uh, I, I want to kind of 
talk a little bit about treating the pain and then treating the function, which are slightly different things, maybe. Let's talk about uh, treating pain. Can we treat this with exercise and sleep or education or nutrition or mindfulness meditation? What, what's the what's the deal? So my experience is that I've not had anything that's been effective at all, ever, which is a bit of a bummer. Um, and so I just live with this. And that some people can say, well, you're not taking any medications. It can't be that bad. Well, no, it's because I've tried the medications. Nothing changes. I got better sleep on a very high dose of gabapentin. Um, we In New Zealand, we'd go up to 3,600 milligrams as the upper dose, which I got up to for gabapentin. Made no difference. I got better sleep. That's it. So came off that. Tricyclics have been used. Um, so we would tend to use nortriptyline because amitriptyline is metabolized into nortriptyline. And we give it a good go, get you up to it's 600 nanoliters per millimole or something. Tiny, tiny amount. Um, and so, But we have to do that because people metabolize um, tricyclics in different ways. So some people are super metabolizers. They need tiny doses. Some people are really poor metabolizers. They need big doses. Or you're people like me and you don't respond. Bummer. <laughs> um, and then the next sort of from a pharmacological perspective, the next line would be, I think in the States you have Lyrica. Um, I'm not sure Lyrica. I'm not sure what that Lyrica. is. Yeah. yeah. Um, Deloxetine. We don't have that here. That was um, approved by the FDA for fibromyalgia. But like most things for persistent pain, some people, a small number, find it really helpful, just the bee's knees. Others say, meh, does nothing. So there, there can be this bimodal distribution for response to medications um, for all times of, types of chronic pain, particularly neuropathic and fibromyalgia, where there's a small group who respond extremely well and life returns to pretty much normal, and then there's the rest. Well, I happen to fall in the rest, which is a yeah you know, a real bummer. And then apart from that, uh, cannabis and cannabis-based medications have been proposed. Um, to date, the evidence is so incredibly sketchy. I would not bother. Um, it might help with sleep, and I think that's a more promising line to look at with our cannabinoid-type medications but I don't think it's changing pain very much. So with exercise, um, there are some fish hooks. So what if, if we think about fibromyalgia as this enhanced sensitivity and it's kind of a new homeostatic level, anything that disturbs that homeostasis, like doing more oh, or doing less, changing what you do, using one body part more or less, um, having a change of routine or, you know, those all can precipitate a flare-up, increased stress, increased movement, whatever. Now, most people who go on do, you know, huffy-puffy exercise will get this adorable and wonderful post-exertional hypoalgesia. So we can poke you and you don't feel it so much. People with fibromyalgia get the opposite. And so we don't get runners high. And we get an, a DOMS. So DOMS, that lasts for like two weeks. Two weeks. 
So we're not talking little stuff. We're talking big flare-ups. And that can disturb sleep. And your sleep can get scratchy. And, of course, we've just told you that rotten sleep predicts worse pain the next day. So it becomes this quite nasty rolling over thing. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't move. Not at all. (laughs) Quite the opposite, actually. But what it does mean is if you've got a sensitive nervous system, you have to make change really slowly. And so you look at what this person's normal movement activity level is and you sneak it up a bit. And because I'm a pragmatist, if you give somebody something that they hate doing and it causes them pain, would they do it? Well, I wouldn't. I I would actually run, and you know that I don't run. I never run. I hate running. But I would flee from anybody who said, go do running because that's really good for you. Oh, and you'll hurt and it'll last for at least two weeks and probably hang around for longer than that. But on the other hand, if I want to go for a tramp, which you guys would call hiking, um, if I want to go for a tramp I and I'm going up quite tall hills and it's a three-day thing, I have to train for it. That means I carry a pack and I increase my walking, and I go up and down hills, but I have to prepare in advance and just gradually sneak it. And what I'm going to have is a small flare-up because I've done something weird and new, and that's going to hang around for a bit, and then it gradually resets itself. Problem is, and I'll be able to do the tramp, it'll be wonderful. Problem is that when I stop that tramp, if I just stop, my body's going to really get cranky because it's got used to that new level. And so I'm going to have to ramp it down. So when I was doing, when we could travel, oh, those were the days, where you've got to sit. So from New Zealand, that's what, 12 hours to get to LA. That's a long time sitting. I have to work to that. I, I'm going to get uncomfortable. That's, that's a fact. And I'm going to take a day extra to recover. So I will build in those extra days, both going and coming back. Um, I think there's some, hmm, probably some changes to the way that melatonin influences people with fibro. We seem to be more responsive to light. So, and our sleep can consequently get disrupted. So there may be some element of if you can supplement with melatonin. Um, In New Zealand, melatonin is a prescribed drug. So we can't just buy it over the counter. I'm not going to say what I did in San Diego. <laughs> Back there's some um, because you can buy gummy bears and they're awesome. Um, but we, yeah, we can't get it. So it's it's on a time release thing and it's very tightly controlled. I again I tried that and once again my sleep was quite nice, but it didn't change my pain. But it does help with that jet laggy and the post-jet lag pain that I get. So Okay. Well, well let's talk about um, uh, treatment, not just to get rid of the pain, but treatment to live better, the idea of living well with pain. And, you know, right off the bat, it's kind of a, it's kind of a controversial for someone to think about this because it's kind of like, okay, uh, part of living well with pain is accepting that you have the pain. So that's kind of like leaving the idea behind that, you're going to get the pain better. So right off the bat, people have a resistance to that idea. So can you talk a little bit about what it means to live well with pain? So um, 
I work a lot with um, motorcyclists. I have no idea why, but that's what happens. And, you know, guys with back pain. And I asked them, have you got out on your, on your motorbike for a long ride? Oh, yeah, yeah. And they look a bit guilty as I ask them that. And I say, and, you know, what was it like when you got back? Oh, I was so sore. I had this massive flare-up. And then I asked this question. Was it worth it? And you watched them change. So when you consider that instead of being resigned, which is what people kind of think of when they think about accept, oh, I've got to put up with this. Instead, I say, are you willing to have some pain if it's worth it? And we actually do this as humans anyway. Somebody who's going to get a hip replacement, that is not pain-free, right? But people say, I could put up with a couple of weeks of post-surgical pain because I'm, I know I'm going to get better. Same with people who do body suspension. So they pierce their bodies with hooks and they lift themselves off, off the ground and they go through that experience, which is painful, and they do not enjoy that pain. But what they do enjoy is the something valued about doing that. I can be the sprays. I can be the strong. I can show myself that I can do this stuff. So if we do things that matter, then we are inclined to do stuff that's hard. And for lots of us, that's painful. So ask a marathon runner if it's pain-free because they always look like they're just about to die in that last few metres as they get to the finish line. All the weight trainers that I know gasp and, you know, yes, it hurts. And yet we tell people with pain, you shouldn't have you should be pain-free. Don't go into that. So we as humans have this really weird duality where we say, shouldn't have pain, but oh, you can have childbirth without pain relief. And you can go to the gym and have incredible pain because it's worth it. So I just bring that concept into pain management. Now, it's not original. <laughs> well, this is deep stuff, right? This is deep stuff. This is... This is uh you know, getting into some kind of almost, there's some resonance here with wisdom traditions like, uh, you know, Buddhism and uh, Lord's Prayer, you know, affect the things you can affect the things you don't. And then some of this stuff gets kind of codified into the ACT, acceptance Mm -hmm. and commitment therapy. I know that you're interested in that. Can you, can you tell us what that is and what that has to do with what we're talking about? So ACT is about how do we develop psychological flexibility which is the ability to to bounce back or resonate or change tack or keep doing what matters despite what life throws at you so it's not about being a happy chappy it's about saying um actually this thing really is quite sucky and i can still do what what matters to me so um i look at like blokes I use this example reasonably often where a bloke will say well I can't be a proper dad because you know blokes do um rough and tumble with their kids and I can't do that because I've got a you know I've got this pain problem so I I can't be a proper dad and they feel terrible because it's compromised a really important value and the using an act approach would say so are you willing to try doing something different maybe there are other ways to be a dad. And we could go from um, things that you can do right now that don't clear your pain up, but help you feel better in yourself, 
two things that might flare your pain up a bit as you get used to this new reality that are also in the pursuit of what matters. So being a good dad. So we can get a guy to sit with their kids and do their homework with them. And then maybe go for a walk with the dog and their kids. And then start to kick a ball around. And we can gradually increase capabilities without saying, oh, you've got to put up with this. But are you willing to do it if it means you can be a really good dad? To me, that's a fantastic way of opening up life again so we put more life into a person's life so that the area that pain dominates is kind of smaller um, yeah. and actually we're creating this sort of seed setting for where pain occupies a less prominent part of a person's life and for many people that means that yes I know I've got this pain but it's back here somewhere and I'm not really that bothered by it and so in my PhD research, that's what I found, that people weren't sort of not noticing their pain. They weren't, it wasn't that they weren't frustrated by having their pain, but at the same time, they were also being able to do what, what made their life worthwhile doing anyway. And it's about finding sneaky alternative ways to, to do it. And I think that allows us as clinicians to be really flexible ourselves. I think the hardest part of helping somebody work through the grief of my old life is different is our discomfort with doing that process, with admitting that we can't actually fix this pain, can't take it away, that, and this is across all our, our modalities for chronic pain, we actually do pretty poorly in terms of reducing pain and disability. And that's across the board. Not because we can't help people, but because any single modality is going to offer a little change. But if you imagine that as a liberating factor for us as clinicians, it says we don't have to use X exercise because it's going to give this person a one millimetre change on a 0 to 100 millimetre <laughs> scale. We can tailor it to oh, we can put in a bit of exercise, but we could call it meaningful movement and maybe it's walking the dog. And we could add in maybe some mindfulness and we could add in some play, maybe gardening, maybe spending some time with your partner, maybe activity management. Maybe there's a whole raft of little shifts that we can help this person pull together to create their own bespoke model, their own package that works for them in their life. Because the thing that bothers me the most is that I fear that people with pain are being told to live somebody else's life, which consists of going to the gym and um, and doing lots of meditation. And, you know, that might not be that person's life. And it might help reduce their pain, but does that help them have a life? After all, our job as clinicians is to help people not need us and to go off and do what matters to them, not what we like. Right. Yeah, I think it becomes so much more what you were saying about the clinicians recognizing that all of these different modalities on their own can only be expected to create small benefits, and so many of them potentially do that. It, it, it leads to kind of a much more common sense problem-solving, cooperative, individualized mm -hmm 
uh, type of a way of trying to help people where it's all very practical and all very tied to concrete problems in their life. Yep. And when you're thinking about this weird abstract world of this incomprehensible disease that's living in your body and how to attack it, it's kind of paralyzing in its complexity and doesn't lead to anything. <laughs> yeah, and for clinicians, we get stuck. The, the really interesting thing is that what you've described is essentially the way that um, our original CBT approach, multi-disciplinary um, programs, interprofessional programs, like this Seattle model, like Turk's approach, and the one that I started working in in the 80s, um, is exactly that. And yes, we bring in movement because movement's really good. And yes, we bring in communication and we learn how to down-regulate and we learn how to understand what our head is telling us or what our mind is having a go at us about. But we don't purport to have the answer. We're helping this person create a suite of stuff that they can access, that they're well rehearsed in, um, so that we don't have like there's only one way to lift a box and there's only one way to go to sleep. There's only one way to be, you know, a wife. And it's just, um, I think it's freeing. It's liberating for us. We can be much more person-centered if we don't think we've got to follow a formula. And that means that, yes, I've, I strongly believe in evidence-based healthcare. At the same time, this person in front of me wasn't in that big cohort and they look different. They are different. So we're really looking for this nomothetic, idiosyncratic way of doing stuff. I love it. Um, it gives me lots of freedom as a clinician. Yeah, that you know, a lot of this stuff is, uh, I think, uh, pretty. It's always been, you know, fairly uh, kind of common sense to me. You know, let's let's see if you can do this thing that you really like to do, and yeah. what are the what are the costs of it, and what are the benefits of it. I mean, that's kind of the way that people probably were, were thinking about solving these problems before they ever decided there was a disease that could be got, yeah. and they, they might be along the path to doing that anyway. So that stuff's kind of common sense. There's, okay. there's a word in ACT that I've always uh, found a little bit more interesting and kind of not so intuitive. And that's that word acceptance. What, yeah. <laughs> and that there's something going on that would talk about why is it important to accept your pain instead of, you know, yeah. what does that mean? So I don't, I don't actually use that term acceptance because it's got that baggage of resignation. Oh, that's I'm the question. Is it resignation yeah. or is this kind of a profound, you know, meditative Buddhist, oh, I accept everything oh, the way it is yeah. type of thing? What is that? No, no, it's, it's about being flexible. It's about acknowledging there are some things that are worth doing despite a fluctuation in pain or despite the fact that my mind tells me I shouldn't be doing it um, and not being not using that as a rigid rule but in some places it's appropriate to in, increase pain as we know if you're going to be a runner you're going to feel pain as you start and we do that that's normal we just think that it shouldn't apply to people with pain that they should not have pain and um, so the idea of willingness is to say are you willing to do this if it's worth it to you if it matters and if it doesn't matter, then do you need to do it? And is it okay? And to be um, oh, flexible, really. So psychological flexibility is the overall aim of ACT. 
And we've got all these different processes, one of which is noticing what's happening in the here and now instead of living ahead and thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to have a huge flare-up. I'm not going to do that. Or remembering the last time you did it and thinking, oh, that was terrible. I'm not going to do that. We want to be in the in the now. And that's, that's this concept of mindfulness. And, yes, you can use formal mindfulness practice, but you can also use moment by moment noticing of what is present. And I like that. It's showing up. Um, the, the next one would be looking at, you know, what's important to you and helping people clarify that. For some people, the value of being pain-free has led them to put life on hold so that they've lost their job, they've lost their relationships, they've gone through waiting room after waiting room, painful surgery, painful procedure after procedure to find this, this thing that they value. And the rest of their life falls apart. Now, that's if you do that knowing that's what you're doing and actively choosing that, that's fine. But if you've never been told there are alternatives and it's never been pointed out that there are things you're losing in the pursuit of this goal, then you're probably going to carry on looking for this pain reduction, particularly if as clinicians we support that. So values are really important because most people would say, I'd really like to have less pain. And then we ask the next question. Well, some people ask the next next question, which is, what will you do with that? If you've got less pain, what does that mean to you? And it could be, I'm not worrying so much about what I'm going to do so I can be more spontaneous. Well, that's a thing we can work on. Or it might be, um, I could be a better dad because I could play rough and tumble. Or we can work on different ways to be a dad. So every time somebody says, I want pain reduction, there's an underlying thing that says, and why? Why is that important to you? And that becomes something you might go after even without the pain reduction. Precisely. And, you know, even if they say, well, I can do everything, but I really like my pain to be gone. That's that's really cool. What would it mean to you to have your pain gone? And we'll find out then by gently uncovering that, not just taking that at, at face value. That's been a debate that we've had many times. But you know, when people say, "I'd like my pain gone," of course you would. I want my pain gone. For goodness' sake, who wants to live with this thing? But I'm not going to. Um, spend my life's energy trying to find that elusive thing we call that dead man's goals so somebody who says oh I don't want to feel any pain well yeah you can do that when you're dead you won't be feeling pain but you won't be having a life and so that's you know when you say I want to not have something generally it's because you want to do something else so let's have a look at that something else but that's why the values part is a really big part of ACT. And then we can go on to the committed action, which is what are you going to do about that? And you don't have to, to be perfect. It's not a switch. ACT is a process. So we start by doing a little bit of committed action in a particular valued direction. And then we carry on doing that step by step by step because values aren't things you can tick off. I can't say, oh, oh, stop, I've, I've done being a good parent. I've ticked that one off. Now I'm going to be a bad one. Who would do that? 
you know, and by, by the way, you never stop being a parent. Kids come home. <laughs> but you know what I mean? So values are more about qualities of the way that you want to live. So you can't just tick it off. Goals are things I can tick off, but values aren't. And committed action are small steps in line with that goal, with that value, so that your life becomes infused with what matters for you in the way that you do things, in the way that you live. Then, of course, your mind's going to show up. It's going to say, oh, but you're a loser, or mm, but you're a pain patient. You're a sucky pain patient at that. You're, you're just a whinger. And this is called the conceptualized self. This is what your mind will tell you about who you are. And you've acquired that from everything you've ever learned. And in fact, we often do that. I hear about um, the idea of othering. I've heard people talk about people with pain. Clinicians talk about people with pain as, well, they are not very organized. They're losers anyway. Uh, you know, life's no hopers. Um talking about me guys and there are lots of clinicians who live with persistent pain we forget about that but what we're doing when we're doing that as clinicians is we're um, inadvertently conveying that to our patients and they adopt that they pick it up our community beliefs about what is it like to live with a chronic disorder is taken up by people so that conceptualized sense of self means it's really violating to get better sometimes because we've got this idea that if I'm if I'm a sickness beneficiary I shouldn't be enjoying myself I shouldn't be doing things that matter because I'm sick um and we can do the reverse I worked with a guy who was a professional rugby player you know football but without the armor yeah we know rugby (laughs) just saying (laughs) so um and he could not get over his change in status in his mind he was still a professional rugby player and to see that he couldn't do that and things that he was doing for his sort of well-being and fitness were tiny little amounts he just felt so ashamed by and his mind was having a field day saying oh you're just a loser you know you're just not trying hard enough and he beat himself up to try and live up to his old expectations rather than starting with where he was at. So, so you're working with people on this kind of deep level, all these kind of these, these wisdom issues. Um, I, I assume that most of them are kind of already there and ready to work on that level. If you're working with them at all, there's a certain amount of time that it takes to kind of even start thinking that way when you, when you've got a pain problem. And I, See, see some people that they're kind of, they're there already when they come to me and they just kind of want to talk with me about that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then, and then you there's get other people that are nowhere near there yeah. and yeah. want the pain to go away yesterday. And, um, and it's a long process, it isn't it, to come to that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, interestingly, I think I've seen ACT used by our acute pain team. So nurses are using ACT with people in, in, in recovery. Um, it's used with, I've used it with people who've just had an accident. Because what we're saying is even though at the moment you can't do things and we don't know what discoveries we could have with pain if we want to apply this to people living with chronic pain, um, we, we can help you start to do what matters 
and recognise that's what what will help drive you. So if we think about post um, surgical rehab, and you've got somebody who's got a knee replacement. Now knee replacements are really horribly painful in the first couple of weeks after surgery, horribly so. So we don't just let people just sit there. And so we, you know, often hear about patients being bullied into get up and move, crack the whip. Well, we can do it in a different way. We could say, so what matters to you? Why did you get your knee replaced? I want to be able to do stuff. So I want to be able to um, look after my own health. I want to be able to get to the toilet by myself. This is a true OT talking. Um, And so we can use that as a value. So looking after yourself and being independent is a really important value to you. Let's start moving in that direction. And that can be used as a motivation for somebody to do something really hard. They're willing, oh, that acceptance, I'm willing to do hard stuff if it means I can achieve this other thing that's really important to me. And we can do that in an acute setting as well. So somebody presents with their knee replacement, why did you get it? I want to be independent. So let's make everything we do in rehab about helping you get there. And so, again, that's individually tailoring the values and the goals and the actions that the person takes. So we're not saying you do it for compliance. It's so simple. Where do you want to go? Uh, let's start figuring out uh, how, how to get there. And it's it, it doesn't work if it's just, uh, I want things to be different than the way they are. It's the, There has to be action. There has to be. And, you know, people will, people will know that. They know that. They're just afraid of, I'm going to get overwhelmed by the pain. So in a, an acute setting, let's use some of that getting in contact with the present moment. So how bad is it right now? Oh, it's pretty, pretty painful. So let's just focus on down-regulating, doing some breathing, becoming aware of where it's sore, and let's just start doing some gentle movement because you know that you want to get better. So let's start there. And it's just, um, it's just gentle, and we're not expecting somebody to jump in and start running with their knee replacement, but we find out what their mind is telling them. So even then, their, their mind might be telling them, well. It's that painful that perhaps the surgeon didn't put that knee replacement, that joint, in properly. We could give them some facts about that. Oh, yes, when you're under anaesthetic, the surgeon does this, and we can show them a video of it, and they'd be you know, momentarily happy. The mind's not going to say, but it could have changed after that. So we might tell them, so, yeah, let's just notice that's what your mind is telling you, but let's just come back to here and now. Let's do some breathing. Let's just notice that it's uncomfortable and we can start doing some gentle movements so that we can, it's not pretending that you're not scared. That's silly. You can't put on a brave face because, you know, your mind's going to tell you, oh, you're, you're a fool. But we can start working flexibly with that as clinicians. And that's, um, that's prim- probably one of the major benefits for me of using ACT both therapeutically but but for myself, and I don't believe you can use ACT without using it on yourself. Uh-huh. <laughs> it doesn't work. Are, are things getting better? Are there more and more therapists out there that are using, you know, your kind of an a, a approach and and not the horrible um, approach that has been used for so long? When I look on social media, which is not a very accurate gauge, um, 
you'd see a lot of people say, no, 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 this doesn't work. And, you know, by the way, there's no better outcomes for ACT than anything else. Um, well, that's true. But we can find easier ways that feel more comfortable. So for me, I noticed that with the patients that I worked with who, who would have otherwise had to do CBT, where they'd have to write a thought record and dispute that thought. I work with blokes, construction workers, plumbers, guys that do not like writing shit down. They don't want to do that. They leave their homework because when they went to school, homework was, you know, why would I do that? I went to school to have my play lunch. Um, so we we can use ACT much more flexibly. And I don't think that it stops us from doing all those other really cool things. It's just saying let's be flexible about it. It's not a rigid approach. So, yeah, there are more therapists. Laura Rathbone Van Muir's is one of my favourites. Um, uh, we've got Joe Tatter, who's got his material out on, on ACT. Um, there are lots. There's lots of research. In fact, chronic pain is one of the areas that ACT has been most widely researched. Um, and so, it's, as I say, it's not about resignation and thinking my pain will never change. It's about making some room for, oh, I'm not that, I don't really like this, and I can start doing stuff. It's an and, and. Um, so we should stop pitting the two pain reduction versus pain living with, stop pitting them against one another. They can both be used. Yeah. Well, th uh, thanks for coming on, Ronnie. I don't want to take any more of your time. I really appreciate it. What? Uh, where can we find you? You want to tell everyone where we can find you on? Yeah, um, probably the best place is um, on my blog, which is www.healthskills.co.nz. Um, I do have an online course for my uh, springboard, which is an ACT-based group program um, that people can get, and there's a link to that on, on the blog. And you'll see me popping up on Facebook quite often. I'm not such a Twitter user. And if you find me on um, on Instagram, you'll probably see my dog, silversmithing, beer, uh, places I go, my garden. Um, because I decided a long, a long time ago that I want to be who I am, not here's my clinical face and here's my non-clinical face. So that you get me. Um, so look for Bronnie Lennox Thompson. Only my mother calls me Bronwyn, you know, that look. Um, so it's Bronnie Lennox Thompson. And you can also get hold of me at um, University of Otago. If you Google University of Otago and Google my name, that I'll come up on there as well. Well, thanks again for coming on. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. <laughs>